come up here and lead you in worship, and you did such a great job. Um, I'm really, really can't even believe how thankful I am again to be here, and I will tell you that probably a million times, but it is an honor and a privilege to be your pastor, to be the pastor of this church, and uh, I am thankful for each and every one of you. Sherry, would you put that picture of the stump up now? All right, when you, when you see this picture, you, you know, you go, wow, that's really great. What are we going to talk about now? I can't wait to see where this is going, right? They say when you, give, when you give a message, you have like, I don't know, 10 seconds to capture somebody's imagination. So I thought for sure I would, I would just throw a stump up there, and that would, you know, because what are you going to think? You go, are we, is he out to stump us today? <laughs> well, no, if you've, if you've been to our house, this is actually a stump from our front yard. And uh, there's a story behind this stump. The story is that Sherry and I, we've been here almost four years now, living here almost four years in our house. The first week that we lived in our house, we have one tree. And uh, one tree, it, it faced west, so it was great trees. It was, it was full, and it blocked the sun as it, as it belt down into our kitchen, so it was nice to have that tree. Well, during the first week, was a big, a big thunderstorm came through, and we were downstairs watching TV, and we heard this big crash and bang, and all the lights went out, the electricity went out, and I thought, wow, that, was, that one was really close, huh? <laughs> and, then, and, so, and so then the lights came back on, everything came back on, so I thought nothing of it. Well, the next day, the next day I was out talking to my neighbor, my next-door neighbor out in the front yard, and I looked down. And I noticed this big piece of bark at my feet, and I'm about 20 feet from the tree. And I go, okay, so what's the deal here? And I look over at the tree, and the tree has a big split right down the middle of it. And, and this tree is literally like 10 feet from our house. And uh, so that night, it was really close. It hit our tree. And uh, the tree lived about a year and a half and uh, finally gave up the ghost. And we had to have it cut down and... Uh, we didn't have the stump ground, so this is what's left in our front yard as a reminder of what we used to have, but we don't have any more. Now we have no trees. We used to have one, but now we have none. Um, when we grew, or, where we lived up in Littleton, we used to have a bunch of trees. In fact, we had so many trees, I had to cut them down. But this was our one tree, and now we have a stump. And if you look at this stump, you notice that there are no shoots from this stump at all. This tree is doornail dead. There was no life left in it at all. Zero life. And there was no stump in here. It is what we would call dead, right? I mean, it is dead. And uh, why am I telling you that? Well, because it has to do with our message this morning, the passage that we're looking at in Isaiah chapter 11 and how uh, God took a dead stump and he brought life from it. And so I'm going to leave this up here for a little bit as a reminder of what power God has and how he does things. So I want us to see that. So I want us to understand that there's hope in this, that there's hope because of what God has given us, that everything that we have, it's, it's not a result of, of human ingenuity or effort. I could not do anything in the world. I could not do a thing to this and make it bring life. I couldn't do it because it's dead. It's dead. But that doesn't mean that, that 
any of us, when we have done things, that they aren't great. Some things people have done are great things. We have. We've invented electricity. We've done a lot of things. But the only reason that we exist to be able to accomplish anything is because God, way back when, at the beginning of creation, took nothing. He took nothing, and he brought life to it by his mighty hand. In order to create humans, he he gathered dust together, and then it, he breathed life into it. And life came not because of human effort, not because it was our idea, but because of God's love and his grace and his plan. He breathed life into it, and life came. And he said that life was very good. All of the other creation, when you read the creation story in Genesis, which I'm sure you have at one time or another, it says that it was good. But when he made people in his image, he said it was very good. God has a history of taking dead things and giving them new life. Even his own son, Jesus, we know when he died on the cross, God raised him from the grave and his body breathed in new air into his lungs once again. God is the life giver. He is not about death and suffering. He is about life and new beginnings. And this is the hope that all of us have. But We know this about God. We know this about our God, that he's a God of new beginnings in life. All of us who have placed our faith in him, we understand that. We have experienced it. Throughout our series, <coughs> we have been seeing his promise through Isaiah's words that for Israel, out of their destruction by Assyria, their enemy, that he would bring a light out of darkness. As we've looked at Isaiah 7 and 9 and now in 11. Today we're going to see that out of this dead stump, not this one, but one even more dead than that one, if that can be possible, a new, a new shoot came forth. This shoot will grow, and it will become strong, and it will grow many, many branches, and it will bear much fruit. It will very much be alive. It will have been once dead, but now bearing fruit and producing its own seed and new fruit. Does that make sense? This is how God works. Isn't that great? So even when we think that things are so dark in our lives and, and that there's no hope and it's difficult for us to see the light, God brings new life. We keep our minds focused on him in that light that brings life then we can find an end to our suffering. This tree, this tree from this, 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 this shoot, if you will, out of the stump that we're going to talk about, it's going to be so great and expansive. It's going to be this new tree of life that we will see one day in the new heaven and the new earth. Let's pray. And then we'll read the passage. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the promise of new life. 
that even in the darkness, Lord, we know that we have new life in you, that you are the life giver. Father, I pray that as we uh, go through your word this morning, that you would be glorified in it. And this would be good news to each of us, Lord, that we would have joy and hope in our hearts and our lives, and we would see how wonderful you really are. And just preach through me, Lord, these words that you have prepared in advance. We thank you so much, Lord, for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's read, let's read the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of of his loins. This is a very powerful passage. Uh, it continues on for a while, but these five verses contain so much that there's no possible way we could get through more of them. So we're just going to look at the first five today. Now, as we've been going through this, I've been trying to give a little bit of the history of what's been going on so that we understand what God is saying in context to the nation of Israel, when they were reading this for the first time. So we have the ability to look back and we can see the fulfillment of these prophecies in Jesus, but they didn't. They were still looking ahead. See, our great hope is that the king has come. We know that. Jesus has come. He has gone to the cross. He was buried. He was resurrected. And he was ascended. Now our hope is that his promise for his second advent, his second coming. That is what we look forward to. In this time period, they were looking forward to the first advent, the coming of their Messiah, as we have called him the head crusher from Genesis 3.15, the one who was going to destroy Satan was coming, and they were looking for him. Okay? So, in Isaiah 10, we'll just quickly go over that. I'm not going to spend very much time on that at all. In Isaiah 10, it recounts the marching Assyrian army as it came through and it destroyed Israel, starting in the northern kingdom and then in the southern kingdom of Judah. And it would lead to the fall of David's throne. And all things looked bleak. David's throne is in shambles because of Israel's sin and disobedience. But remember, God promise, like we talked about, that the Messiah, the head crusher in Genesis 3.15, would come from David's throne. Remember the Davidic covenant? That his bloodline, that it would come through his bloodline and God would keep his promise just as he keeps every promise that he makes to us. So I'm going to read the last two verses from Isaiah chapter 10. And then we'll talk about them, because to be honest, they're a little confusing. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop 
the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty shall be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon shall fall by the majestic one. So those, when we read those, and we just read those out of context, we go, what in heaven's name does that mean? They're confusing. Well, what it means is, what God is using, he's using through Isaiah, <coughs> a word picture. The armies of Assyria, <coughs> excuse me, I don't know what's going on here. Give me, get, give me a second. The armies of Assyria are like a tall forest of trees. It's almost formidable, so thick you can't hardly see through them, right? You've ever been in a forest like that where, you, where it was so thick with trees you could barely see light, even in the middle of the day? It, it's a little intimidating, to be honest. But God, God is showing himself to be mightier because God is the forest maker, right? He is the forest maker, and no one is bigger or tougher than the creator. And so the Lord destroyed Assyria, that he would be the one to take down the arrogant enemy of Israel. And Assyria's destruction will be by the Lord's hand alone. And it will be like this giant forest being taken down with a single axe. But imagine how mighty that axe must be. And how sharp it must be. It is a sign of his righteous judgment. And this, this brings us now to chapter 11, verse 1. And the first verse says this again. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You see, again, we're going to go over this a lot. Out of a dead stump, life will rise. Because out of a dead stump, only the creator can bring the life. Do you see? It's important for us to remember the stump had to be dead because only God can bring it new life. And out of the fall of Judah, out of the fall of the Assyrian army, there is hope. There is a great hope. Now, I'm going to ask, I mean, who here today needs hope? Raise your hand. Go ahead. Raise your hand if you need hope. I need hope. I think all of us need hope in our lives, even those of you who are too shy to raise your hands inside your heart. I know you're saying, I need hope because I don't have any. Or if you, if you do, it's in Christ, right? <clears throat> but in this passage, Isaiah provides for Israel and provides for us an amazing and a powerful story of hope. The throne of David's been crushed. The northern and southern kingdoms are destroyed. They're dead because the Lord allowed it to, them to die, because of their idolatry and their unfaithfulness to him. And then, and then God took away their armies, as we've already talked about. But, but this, the Lord is about to bring Israel great hope, because out of their destruction, even though they are prideful and unfaithful in their idolatry, the Lord left a stump. In Isaiah 6.13, the Lord mentions the stump, and he calls the stump a holy seed. A holy seed. And this stump that appears dead, it stills life in it. It is the holy seed. What is 
the holy seed, you might ask. It is the seed that will bring about the Messiah. It is the one part of it that still has a little bit of life that the Lord can work with. And so the Lord will bring new life. Isaiah tells us that God has not forgotten his promise to David and that new life will shoot up from the dead stump. This brings us hope. Why? Because it reminds us that God is a promise-keeping God. He never forgets his promise. He keeps every one of them fully and completely. Now, Isaiah refers to Jesse, who was David's father. Why didn't he just refer to David, that out of David's stump would come the shoot? Because he wanted to show two things. One, that the Messiah was going to come from humble roots. David was a great king. He was a mighty king, maybe the best king that Israel had. But we know that David wasn't perfect. David had faults. David sinned with Bathsheba. Bathsheba didn't sin, by the way. David fully sinned, and he did other things, and he killed Uriah, her husband, by sending him to the front. So David was powerful, but he was flawed. And this new, greater king, this, if you will, this new, greater David would come from the same stump that David came from, Jesse, through the line that David came from. He is the, he of course, we know him as Jesus. He is flawless. He is perfect. He is the greater David. He is the perfect David. He is the new David. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one that they were looking for, the one who came to turn the world upside down, turn it right on its face. And we see that from the fall of David's throne, that through this, God keeps his promise. He will make a throne from this dead stump, and from this throne, there will be new life that will grow. Branches will continue to grow and bear fruit. Isaiah 4.2, Isaiah mentions a branch, and he calls it the branch of the Lord, and it shall be beautiful and glorious, and it will produce fruit. And that's in Isaiah 4.2. It will produce fruit, fruit so great that it will be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Remember the remnant that we've been talking about. And if we look at Jeremiah, Jeremiah has this beautiful picture of this in Jeremiah 20 through 5 and 6. Let's read that. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, capital B branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall, shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. How beautiful is that? And we know, we know, because again, we can look back and see that this branch is Jesus. He is the king. He is the righteousness 
of the Lord. Meaning, Jesus is the greater king. He is the greater David, the just king. Now, we read again in the New Testament, Jesus talks about vines and branches in John 15, 1 through 5. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Now this is the important part. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. You, speaking to us, are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that he is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. You and I are called to abide in Jesus, and when we do, we will produce fruit, abundant fruit. And in order to do that, we are to abide in him or remain fixed to him, the true vine, which is Christ. Our life-giving sustenance comes from him and him alone. In John 6, 35, Jesus said that he is the bread of life, that whoever comes to him will not hunger, and whoever believes in him will never go thirsty. Christ is the food and the drink that provides us life to grow and produce great fruit. Now, what is this fruit? We talk about this a lot, but what does this fruit mean? It is a life lived for Jesus, growing in him and affecting the lives of others around you, sharing the gospel, making disciples, being the light for Jesus in a dark world, praying for others who are hurting and are lost, helping the poor and the widows and the orphans, persevering to the end, never giving up on Christ, no matter what we go through in life. This is what a transformed life looks like, a life that produces fruit. Now we need to ask ourselves, is that what our life looks like? Are we producing fruit? <clears throat> so what is this about King Jesus, this branch, this shoot that was going to come up from the stump of Jesse, what is it that allows him to rule justly? As we now move to verse 2, chapter, or verse 1 was the big one, and the rest of these will go through a little quicker. But the Spirit of the Lord is what did it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord rested upon Jesus. Now Jesus recalls this about himself in Luke 4.18. <clears throat> in this passage in Luke 4.18, <clears throat> Jesus is in the synagogue and he's opened the books and he's reading about himself. And he is quoting Isaiah 61.2, which he describes as himself. Now listen to what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
You see, Jesus brings hope and joy to the needy and downtrodden, the underdog, the suffering, the poor, not only financially, but those that are poor in spirit. And there are six aspects of the spirit of the Lord that is upon him. We'll go through these rather quickly. So the first one is the spirit of wisdom. It's the spirit of wisdom because we know that Jesus is the source of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.24, Paul calls Jesus the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. <clears throat> Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Jesus is the source of wisdom because the spirit of wisdom rests upon him and it begins with him. The second one is an understanding understanding. Proverbs 2.6 says that, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding, the perfect ability to discern truth from falsehood, good from evil. Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness by what? Not by taking a sword and whacking him, right? No. He defeated Satan in the wilderness even though he had been weak and without food or drink for 40 days, <clears throat> because he is understanding. He is the word of God. <clears throat> he is the author of life. The third is the spirit of counsel. <clears throat> and as the author of life, he is the wonderful counselor that we talked about in Isaiah chapter 9. He is the one who guides us in all things, which is why he is seeking counsel from him in prayer is so important. Because Jesus displayed his great counsel to the Samaritan woman. If you remember the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, Jesus showed her great counsel, counsel beyond anything that she had ever experienced before. And that showed her who he was. He was different. He was the one. And the fourth one is, of course, might. Jesus is might. He is the mighty God. Again, in Isaiah chapter 9, God who has the power and dominion over all things. We see this in his miracles, his healings, and his power over the weather even to calm the sea. How he was able to fill Peter's empty nets after he'd been fishing all night with no luck. His power and his might over death with his own resurrection. Remember how he withered the fig tree and how he raised Lazarus from the dead? Nothing is beyond his mighty hand. The fifth one is the spirit of knowledge, which we'll just refer back to wisdom and knowledge. And the sixth one is in the fear of the Lord. Jesus has great respect for his father. He and the Father are one. When you see the Son, you see the Father, as Jesus said in John 14, 9. Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus. In John 14, 31, Jesus said, He does what the Father has commanded him to do. Nothing more and nothing less. And this included when Jesus took the cup that the Father gave him to go to the cross and be crucified. Now how does all of this 
come together. We look at verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or, dis or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Because Jesus has the spirit of the Lord upon him, and as God himself, he is omnipotent, meaning he knows all things. He can see beyond the surface where we make our judgments. When we judge, we look on the surface. We might get eyewitnesses. We might gather evidence, and we weigh the evidence of what is right and what is wrong, and then we render a judgment. <laughs> Jesus doesn't need any of that. Jesus just looks into your heart. He knows what all of us are thinking. He knows what is inside of all of us. I can't look into your heart. I can't know what's going on in your mind. And you can't know what's going on in my heart and mind, and I am very thankful that you cannot do that. You're probably grateful that I can't do that to you either. But Jesus can. So that should scare you, okay? It does me, all right? But, but that's a good thing too because this brings about a right judgment. Jesus judges justly because he is the righteous judge. And then in verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. He shall judge the poor with righteousness. Matthew 5, 3, as we talked about a little bit in Sunday school in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God has a heart for the poor. Not just financially poor. He's talking about the spiritually poor. All of us, believe it or not, are spiritually poor before we come to Christ. All of us don't know anything about God. We have no idea who he is. We might think we do, or we put him into a box that makes us feel good so that we can understand him. But without him, we can't know anything about him. Because it's the power of the Holy Spirit that opens our mind to the scriptures that gives us even a desire to go to the scriptures and see. And so with righteousness, a rightness, right? That we stand justified before the Lord, not because of ourselves, but because of Him. That's where our justification comes from. We've talked about this before. And then He decides with equity for the meek of the earth. Again, we go back to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount where He said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek. <clears throat> that does not mean the weak. That does not mean those without strength or without, a, without chutzpah, if you will. But it's the meek is understanding that our strength doesn't come from ourselves. When you read the story of Samson in the, in the Bible, sometimes we see him and we read about him, and he is very strong. God made him strong by his hair, right? There's a lot of into that story. But, but also Samson gets off track because he starts using his own strength. And he realizes later on that that's not going to help him. And in the end, he asks God to provide the strength to take down the temple, right, of the evils. This is the way we are. 
we are to be meek before the Lord. Not that we are to be weak and spineless, but we are to find our strength in him. And then he says, he says, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Now we see this when we read Isaiah chapter 10. We see this as an example of that. God is the one who whacks down with an axe the trees and the forests of the Assyrian army. We read that earlier. It is God who is the one who does this, not us. Not us. A lot of times we get into battle in generals and armies and presidents and leaders and there's, you know, and listen, anybody, what I'm about to say, I don't mean to offend anyone because I wasn't in the military doing battle. I've never faced an enemy face to face. And so what I might say, I don't want to offend anyone, but if you're a Christian, and Chris, I know this is not going to offend you because we've talked about this. Our strength and our ability to fight in battle does not come from us. It doesn't come from us. We can only do it in his strength because in the end we know it is him. And so when we accomplish these things, when we defeat our enemies in battle, and we stand up and say, oh, look at what I have done. I am so mighty and great. Look at me. And you... You know, and they would provide the Roman armies with wreaths and presents and things when they would return in battle. Did you ever receive a wreath or anything in return? Got some cookies. Got some cookies, Sam? Probably not, no. Yeah. Anybody else who's fought in the military or served in the military, uh, today we don't receive those things. But listen, God knows what you've done, and you did it for him. You did it for him. Listen, it is God He is the one. He is the one who fights the battles. He is the one who allows us to go into the battles against our enemy and have victory. Because he is the strength by which we are able to do these things. Now we get down to verse 5. Verse 5, it says this, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and the faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now this should help us in our minds think of the armor of God, right, that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. Does this, does this remind you of the armor, armor of God, the full armor of God? Well, that's what he's talking about, right? It's a belt. He is ready. He is readying himself for battle. Now, I want to read for you, I want to read from you my favorite description of Jesus, which is in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. I love this. Maybe someday we'll talk about this in its own sermon, but I love this depiction of Jesus. Because when we get to heaven, one of the great promises that we have in 1 John 3 is that we will get to be made like Jesus and we will seek him for what he really is, who he really is. We will seek him. We have a picture of him in our heads, right? Some of us have pictures in our houses of what Jesus looks like. Well, those aren't him. (laughs) We're... But one day we will see him. And here's a description of him in Revelation 19. This, this is what John describes Jesus as. Now this, he's doing the best that he can with a human language to describe something that's indescribable. He says, Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Now, if you had someone come up and describe you Would you not love to have someone describe you as faithful and true? Faithful and true. And this is Jesus. Jesus, faithful and true. 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Imagine that. Jesus has a name. We have a lot of names for Jesus, but he has one that we don't even know yet. But we're going to find out. Yeah. Yeah. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword by which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's Jesus, people. Amen. He is a warrior king. And he's coming to bring us home. And he is going to help us destroy our enemies. In fact, he is going to destroy them for us. So what does this all mean to us then? We read these five verses and it's, it's a lot. And we've been through a lot. But what does this really mean to us? We know Jesus has come. But what can we get from these words of Isaiah's, about from Isaiah? What hope can we draw from this? It's this. Because of this shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesus, we too are given hope of new life. You and I are given hope of new life. For a lot of us, this is not going to be anything new. None of this probably has been, but it is a great opportunity to remind ourselves of what we have as we go into Christmas week this week, a week where I hope we find rest, which is difficult. I know we're all very, very busy and life doesn't slow down just because of the holidays. In fact, a lot of times it just speeds back up, but I want us to take a moment to take some time, but think about this. Now we know, we know Jesus himself experienced death on the cross. That he was buried for three days and then life entered into his dead body and he returned to life. He was resurrected, right? And because of his resurrection, we too can be given new life. Because we talk about this all the time. And I'm not going to beat a dead horse, if you will. We are dead in our sins. We know this. Like the stump, we're dead, we're lifeless. We have no hope without him. But from that dead stump, from that dead stump, God has created a shoot, new life, out of our dead stump when we put our faith in Jesus. He gives us hope. 2 Corinthians 15, 17 and verse 20 say this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. And this is what Paul says. This is, I want you to hear what Paul says to all of us right now. We implore you on behalf of Christ. In other words, we just want you so badly, it bursts out of our chest. 
that on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. To take this hope that we have in Christ and give your life to him. And out of the deadness of your sin, let that shoot come up and experience new life. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 say this. Paul writes, But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Romans 6.23, we know the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what's called grace, the free gift that none of us deserve, the gift of new life in Christ. This is what came from the stump of Jesse, is new life and hope for all of us, that we will have eternal life instead of eternal death. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have been giving a living hope according to God's great mercy. He did not send us to the cross. He sent Jesus to the cross, his own son. That is mercy, a punishment we deserved that he gave to another. He gave it to his son. And then we are born again into a new hope through the resurrection of Christ. And then Romans 8, 1 and 2. One of the great promises of the Bible that Paul writes again. He says this. He says, therefore, and you need to memorize this verse if you haven't. If you're a Christian, you need to memorize uh, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. In other words, there's no sense of death for those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you are alive with a promise of eternal life. You will live with the king and his kingdom forever. You inherit his kingdom. A kingdom that, oh yeah, that's easy to say. What does that look like? Wait until you see it. I can't wait until I see it. But we inherit it, all of us, a full share as children of the king. As children of the king. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. You are free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You are free to live and know you are in him. Ezekiel says this. He says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a, heart, give them a new heart of flesh. He takes our heart of stone out and he places a new heart of flesh. A heart that allows us to feel and have compassion and empathy for people. A heart that allows us to love in the way that he loves us. A heart for us to be like him. 
Who doesn't want to be like Jesus? Even those of us who sit here and tell ourselves, like myself, that I can't be like him. I'm not him. No, you're not. This is why you have to be made into a new creation and raised again in a new hope. And only he can do that. You can't do it yourself. You must surrender yourself to him and allow him to bring you forgiveness from all of those things that you've done in the past that you are ashamed of. Those things that you think hold you back from God. God says, you cannot be so bad that I cannot redeem you. You can't be so dead in your sins that I can't produce a new shoot. You can't. You can try, but you can't. If he is calling you to himself today, surrender. Because if he is calling yourself today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after, you have no chance. He gets what he wants. And he wants you. He wants you to surrender yourself to him. This is the good news of hope that we have. This is why Christmas, the Advent season for us, is so great. Even though Jesus has come and he has gone to the cross and he has ascended, we wait his return to come and get his people. And if you're not one of his people, then today is the day. Today is the day for you to give your life to Jesus. I want us again, I want us to take time to, to dwell on this truth of the Bible, this truth of Isaiah that we have gone through the last few weeks. And just understand what God has done for you. To take time, find five, ten minutes, a half hour of just slow time this week and really think about what Jesus has done for you. When God brought that shoot out of that dead stump of Jesse, he gave you hope. He gave you hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we just thank you, God, for today. We thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord. You are awesome. We thank you, God, for the hope of new life, that out of you, Lord, out of death comes new life. Only you can do that because you are the life giver. Lord, those of us who are dead in our sins, Lord, we pray that you would give us new life in you. Father God, call us to yourselves and help those of us who have already submitted to your call, Lord, to live for you. To not give up. To not let despair and doubt come into our hearts. But that we would persevere to the end. Always focused on the light, even in the darkness. Lord, that we would focus on the light that you are bringing, that you have brought. And Lord, let us never lose hope in the fact that you kept the promise that you were coming the first time. And now you've made a promise that you're coming the second time. Let us never hold back our hope and our faith knowing that you will return. Whenever that is, let us be ready. And I praise you and thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If we could have our men come forward for uh, communion this morning. As we come to the table again, every time.